chapter 3. We are working our way through this book nice and uh, slow. We're doing three verses this morning. Um, last week we did a whole chapter. Chapter 2, this week we're doing three verses, so you never know what you're going to get here. Uh, it says this, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Why am I in Romans 3? Excuse me. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. The title of this sermon is The Glory and Folly of Independence. The Glory and Folly of Independence. We're going to see that independence when it comes to God is glorious, but independence when it comes to man is folly. My desire this morning, dear church, is that you would Depend on God alone for your strength and your satisfaction. That you would depend on God alone for your strength and satisfaction. Now, if you've ever been to a store, a department store, or a grocery store, or anything like that, certainly you've seen how they have signs and displays for a particular product that you're trying to push and sell. Maybe it's the new item of clothing for that season. Maybe it's something that they're just trying to get rid of because they have too much in stock. Maybe it's a new line of product that they're uh, trying to sell and promote. But at these stores, they'll have this display. And on that display of, of the item that they're trying to sell, you'll have all these signs pointing towards the product. You'll have descriptions set up. There'll be bright colors and, and bold letters and, and fancy words or, you know, they're claiming just way too much for this product. This product is going to just change your life and fix all your problems, whatever it might be. What they're trying to do is to get you to buy it, right? They're trying to sell you this, this thing. And they're using everything to, to get your attention. And once they get your attention, they're trying to describe to you the goodness of that product and your need for it. Well, for us this morning, God is, as it were, setting up a display for us. To display for us the goodness and the glory of who He is and our utter need for Him. Mankind, left to ourselves, every single human being, every single member of the human race is absolutely unable to rightly understand who God is and how to be right with Him. 
The only way that we can properly know God and know how to uh, experience him and know him personally is if God first chooses to reveal himself to us. We cannot work our way to him. We praise God that this this is indeed what he has done in the pages of Scripture. Especially when we come to a passage like this, we come face to face with our Redeemer, God. He describes himself to us just in this brief description of of a bush on fire, but yet not consumed. We're going to explore why does God choose to reveal himself in this way to Moses in his first encounter with this man. His first that this is the first time that Jesus, or excuse me, that God shows up on the scene. Uh, we, we've had descriptions of him. We've had um, explanations of how he's thinking and, and what he's doing kind of behind the scenes up to this point. But here, he actually enters into the scene. First impressions are super important. And this is exactly why God has chosen to reveal himself Firstly, this way in this bush. Now, before we get into the, the particulars of this, uh, in, in our lives as Christians, we can easily rob ourselves, can't we, of joy and peace by embracing an idea of God that is too limited, too small. I'm convinced that that. Many Christians do this. They don't intend to do this, but, but they have done this to themselves, where they have this finite, small view of God. And so when troubles come into their life, the troubles seem bigger than their small God. It is vital, dear Christian, for your spiritual health to understand the nature of God. The doctrine of God stands as a defensive barrier to stop you from falling off into the cliff of hopelessness and despair. There's this repetition in the book of Exodus where he says, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. And it's unmistakable that God is repeatedly emphasizing his self-disclosure, his self-revealing to his people. That's why we have named this uh, series as we go through Exodus as Meet Your Redeemer, because that's what he is doing constantly through this book. He's showing who he is and what he is like, what he does. So what does a knowledge of God provide? What does a true Biblical, robust knowledge of God provide? The reformer Melanchthon said it well. To know Christ is to know his benefits. You won't know what you have unless you know who you have. So this morning... I desire that you would be amazed by the self-sustaining God and, as a result, be sustained by the self-sustaining God. That's our two points 
this morning. Be amazed and be sustained by the self-sustaining God. Verse 1, chapter 3. Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, Moses is going to later lead the Israelites, actually, to this same mountain, to this same location. This is Mount Sinai. This is Mount Horeb. This is the place where God said in verse 12 of chapter 3, Certainly I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So this is where they end up. This is where he wants to take them. Later on in chapter 19, verse 1 and 2, says, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, spoil alert, they, they make it out, they're delivered out of slavery, on that very day, it says, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain, same mountain. This is the mountain of God. This is where God has chosen to reveal himself. He's not limited to this mountain, but there is something important to God about physical location. He desires to be with his people. And since we are finite, and since we can only be in one location at a time, our great God, our great creator, has decided and, and willed to, as it were, limit himself to our limitations, to, to even though he is omnipresent, even though he is everywhere, fully, all the time, he chooses to reveal himself in particular locations. Because he stoops down to our level, because we can't be everywhere all the time like he is. And so he has to, in order to have a relationship with us, he has to get down, as it were, to our level. And we see that here where this great God decides to be with his people at a specific location. Now, we're going to explore more about that location as the weeks go on, especially as the, the Israelites are delivered from Egypt to this place. We're going to explore more about the location. Also in verse 2, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in this blazing fire in the midst of the bush. We are going to go on and explain who this angel of the Lord is next time. I want to spend our time looking at how God has chosen to reveal himself here, a particular aspect of the nature of God. But just in passing, this is the pre-incarnate Son of God. This is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. We see him here, we see him other places showing up in, before this in the book of Genesis. We see him showing up after this through the rest of the Old Testament. He shows up. We see that the Son of God is intimately involved in the life of God's people. He's always been this way. 
But there has been this final, ultimate revelation of God in the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, where he was clothed in human flesh. It's all leading up to that. And so we get these little previews, these little sneak previews along the way in the Old Testament of this one, of this Messiah, who is fully God and will one day become fully man. And he did in the incarnation. And so this is just one sneak preview along the way that, that hints at what Jesus, as we understand him, is really like. It's the same person. It's the same person that hung on the cross. Is this same angel of the Lord who manifested himself this way. Let's get into it. Verse 2, just to read it again, because it's all we got here this morning. Verse 2 and 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. Notice how, how frequently this bush is, is mentioned. Appeared to him in the blazing fire from the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I will turn aside now to see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Why the emphasis on this bush? Why the emphasis on what is happening to this bush? It's just a bush. The bush isn't God. The bush is God's flannel graph, as it were. You ever seen those? Those old flannel graphs? Where, you know, it's, it, it's this, um, what is it, felt uh, fabric on a board. And, and you know, the, the, the teacher in Sunday school will put the little figurines, put Jesus and put the disciples and he'll, they'll stick them on to the, to the board. It's, it's used to tell a story. The figurines, that's, it's not Jesus, it's not, it's not Paul, it's not the disciples, right? It's, it's communicating something about them, Right? So the bush is God's flannel graph. It's, it's not God. It's just what God is using to communicate something about himself. What is he communicating? The aseity of God. A-S-E-I-T-Y. A-S-E-I-T-Y. The aseity of God. This word aseity comes from ah and say in Latin, which means from one's self. It's not a biblical word, but it's a biblical doctrine. And the Latin word is used to describe what we see in Scripture. So ah and say in aseity is Latin for from oneself. Meaning here, the doctrinal meaning is that God has life in and of himself. He draws his unending energy from himself. No other being in all of the universe can claim this. So we see something that is exclusive to God that should make our jaws drop this morning. And that's my intent, to just get us to be stunned by the greatness of God. The assertive of God means that God exists 
of and from himself alone. This is what God is describing. This is his flannel graph. This is his PowerPoint presentation of this reality. Notice the bush is on fire, but yet not on fire. There is a fire in the midst of the bush, but yet the fire is independent from the bush. Normally, when wood catches fire, the fire normally doesn't last forever, right? If you've ever built a campfire or had a fireplace in your home or uh, if you've lit a, a, a match and you have that one little stick of, of wood right there that you're holding, it doesn't last forever. It eventually goes out. Why? Because the wood is consumed. There's no more fuel. The, word, the, the, the fire burns up the wood because the fire is dependent upon the wood. The fire needs the wood. It needs fuel in order to keep going. Normally, if you have a campfire, you have to keep throwing more and more logs into that fire for it to not die out, and so you don't get cold at night. But once the wood is burned up, the fire is no more, right? But not this fire. Look at it. This stuns Moses. I must turn aside, verse 3. And see this marvelous sight. There is something that is not normal. There's something marvelous about the fact that the bush is not burned up. That's what he says. This fire was not just a regular fire, it was the fire of the self existent God. This, this mountain here is. It, just, it, it, it alludes to this reality that, as I mentioned before, just because God has chosen this mountain, this location, to display and to manifest himself doesn't mean that this is only where God is, right? God is beyond this world. He is spirit. He is eternal. And so when he describes himself and reveals himself in finite realities, he is not limited to those finite displays. Those finite displays describe something infinite. This mountain actually is the same mount where the Israelites would eventually be led. And when they came to this same mountain, uh, this is also where God displays again himself to his people again through fire. Exodus 19. We looked at this already a little bit. Verse 2, when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Now, go a little bit farther down, 18, verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai, same mountain, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, 
was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. A little farther down, look at the effect in chapter 20, verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when they saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or else we will die. That's the effect that God has on people. This awe, this wonder, this greatness of God. And Moses is getting a sneak preview here of that later event of Mount Sinai, where God descends upon the mountain, and not just this bush is on fire now, the whole mountain is on fire. This fire is the fire of God. Our God is a consuming fire, but yet not dependent. Sinclair Ferguson says it best. I'll quote him. The fire that was in the bush, present in the bush, but preserving the bush. It was a symbol of God's redemptive power. But notice especially that the fire was in the bush, but was not dependent on the bush, for its energy to burn. A fire that was independent of that on which all other fires depend. A fire that was in the bush, but not burning up the bush. A most pure fire. A fire that was nothing but fire. A fire that was not a compound of other energy sources, but had its energy source in itself. What is this telling us? In the very essence of God, He is self-existent. This means that God did not at any time come into being as a result of anything or anyone else. He is not the result. He is the cause of everything else. And God is the uncaused cause. We see the glory here of the absolute self-sufficiency, independence, and autonomy of God. He is outside of us. He is above all creation. He is not dependent on it. Christian, he didn't make you and save you because he needed you. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored. He was entirely self-sufficient. The only reason he made you, Christian, was so that you would acknowledge him as such and worship him as such. He didn't need you. Also, this means that God does not depend or rely upon anything or anyone to sustain him, to provide for him, to fulfill him, or to complete him. You know, in, in, in puppy love, 
A young man can tell a young woman, you complete me. And we like to transfer our understanding of love to God. There is a sense in which God loves us. And he loves us in that intimate kind of way. We are dear to him. But Christian, don't get it twisted. You don't complete him. Rather, he completes you. In his being, God is self-existing while all the rest of creation is dependent upon him. He is utterly dependent upon them. Did I say that right? While all of creation is dependent upon him, he is utterly independent of them. God not only has life in and of himself, but he is life to the rest of the universe. He has the source of life within himself. And so, it logically concludes, Christian, depend on God alone for strength and satisfaction. The aseity of God is not just seen here, but it's also seen through creation. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. In verse 20, let's start in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Notice what is revealed. His eternal power and his divine nature. We see here that that ever since God created the world, his attributes have been on display to us. The enormous mountains, the deep seas, the, the bright sun and stars, the beautiful flowers, the complexity of nature, and even the complexity of the human body itself. All of these are like that, that display in the store, pointing to the power, the divine nature of God. All these point to God's attributes, namely that he is divine, that he is God, and that he is eternally powerful. Look at the wording. Verse 20, since the creation of the universe, creation of the world, excuse me, his invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. So the invisible attributes are now visible in creation. What, are, what is one of the invisible attributes that creation reveals? That God has power, but it's not just any power, notice. It is eternal power. Those little words that we just so quickly skip over can fill whole volumes of books. God has an eternal 
power. His power is a mighty and a great power. It is great enough and strong enough to create mountains and to create whole universes and galaxies and stars that, that dwarf our sun. But this power is not limited. It is not temporal. It is eternal power. His ability to accomplish his desires is never lessened by a previous act. So God planned in eternity past to save his elect. And because his power is eternal, he has just as much power to save sinners as he did when he first planned it. Think about that. Christian, God chose you from before eternity passed. And in that great powerful decree, he, it, his power to, to act upon that decree and that determination to save you, Christian, just because he made the universe doesn't mean that he's less powerful now to carry it out. Amen. He can save you. He has saved you, hasn't he, Christian? And as you pray for your loved ones, his power is not diminished by any act of greatness on his own. He is just as powerful to save your loved ones as he was to save you. God has plans for his saints, plans of good, not evil, right? But his ability to do good for you is never low or lacking. He doesn't have a hard day when he needs to take a day off and to regain his strength. No. He is an abundant source of power. His power meter, you could say, never diminishes. It never goes down. Psalm 102, verse 25 through 27 says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. That is our God. His strength is is never worn out. There's there's no wear and tear on God. He is as fresh and full of energy, you could say, as when He made the heavens and the earth. He is just as full of power and ability as that first day that he made. No matter how much God accomplishes in one day or one year, he does not get worn out, Christian. You can see the glory, can't you? See the glory of the absolute self-sufficiency, independence, and autonomy of God. And so we are, as it were, invited to to find our sustenance in Him. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 3. 
Exodus 3. These three verses that we're looking at are part of a larger context. And, and as God is having a conversation with Moses, telling Moses, you're the guy. You're going to go deliver my people, and I'm going to be with you. I will go with you, and I'm going to accomplish this because I've heard their cries, and I love them. Moses says, well, what's your name? I'm going to go back to these people, and I need to say, so-and-so is going to save you. If it's not going to be me, who is it, God? Who shall I say sent me? Verse 13, Exodus 3.13, Moses said, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel. I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is where the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, comes from. In your scriptures, capital L-O-R-D, in English, is the divine name Yahweh in Hebrew. And it, every time that is used, your mind has to come back here to this encounter. This bush that is independent, this fire that is independent of the bush, self-sustaining God, and he names himself I Am. This, this name of I am is connected with this burning bush. The Israelites, because they were born and raised in Egypt, were so used to, to gods having different names, like a god of the sun, god of the moon, god of the river, god of the rain, god of the sky, god of the animals. So which one are you, God? God's answer is, I am. I'm not just the God of Israel. I'm not just the God of this mountain. I'm not just the God of the rain or the skies or the river or the livestock. I am. I am. He says, I am the one that has being within himself. I am. I stand alone. I am not like the false gods of Egypt who need your sacrifices and offerings to feed them and sustain them. I have no needs. I created everything and everything else depends on me. I am. That's what he's saying. And we'll get into the depth of that theological reality as the weeks go by. But like Moses, who turned aside to just marvel at the bush, that's what we're doing this morning. We're just kind of stepping aside. We're not plowing through this chapter. We're just going to step aside, slow down, and observe. The theological name, just in passing, the theological name of I am cannot be exhausted. The significance, the theological significance of I am is inexhaustible because it's like the, the tip of the iceberg, really, describing the aseity and the complete nature of God. God simply is. At any point in time, even before the creation of time, because, mind you, creation, uh, time is a creation of God. 
How's that for blowing your mind? God made time. So God exists outside of time because he created it. And before he made time, as if you can think of it that way, that there was a time before time, our finite minds can only think in that way, but so before time, outside of time, God simply is. There is no coming to be. There is no origin story for God. Nor is there any ceasing to be or expiration of God. Because he perfectly is. This is true. This reality, this aseity of God is true solely of God alone. Only God claims this. Therefore, it distinguishes him from every other created being whose very existence depends and is derived from something outside of themselves, which ultimately comes from God. You did not birth yourself. You did not create yourself. You are the product of your parents. And they are the product of their parents. And so on. Where the source is God. We are the product of His divine, eternal power. Your very life, your very breath comes from Him. You cannot sustain yourself. Our God is the ever-living, ever being God who cannot be described in any other way than I am who I am. This speaks of absolute being. This speaks of timeless existence. This speaks of unending strength. This speaks of eternal life. And so we've come face to face, as it were, with the glory of the absolute self-sufficiency and independence and autonomy of God. Now, if it is glorious and amazing and wonderful for God to be self-sustaining, independent, and autonomous, if that's glorious about God, then it is complete foolishness for any created being, including all of us, to claim the same independence and autonomy. This is something only true of God. And if you dare try and say or even live your life as one who is independent of God, autonomous from God, self-sufficient apart from God, you are a fool. This brings us to our second and last point. Be sustained by the self-sustaining God. Isaiah Isaiah chapter 40. And 
as we turn there. Dear friend, if you don't know the Lord this morning, if you have not bowed the knee to Christ, if I can say it with all gentleness and care, if you are trying to live your life you, without God, you are this fool who tries to be independent and autonomous and self-sustaining. You're trying to be God. That's the worst thing that you can do. Because God has no rival. He opposes the proud. So I, I beseech you, humble yourself before this God. Realize that He is God, you are not. And that the life of self-sufficiency and, and calling your own shots, which is basically autonomy, that kind of life that you've been leading is, is, is spitting on the face of God. Saying, I don't need you. I got this. You have offended the Almighty God that way. Whether you realize it or not. Humble yourself and admit that pride and say, God, forgive me for my pride. Forgive me for my so-called self-sufficiency. Forgive me, God. Wash me clean, though, please, in the blood of Christ. May, may his payment on the cross be transacted to my account where I owe you, God. I owe you eternal judgment, eternal wrath for my pride, for rejecting you my whole life. I deserve to be cast aside. But oh, I bow the knee to you in repentance. And, and I just plead that what Christ did on the cross can be put into my account. That he would take my judgment for my pride and I would just take his good works. I would take his complete and perfect righteousness. You cry out to God in repentance and he'll forgive you. Even though you spent your whole life trying to do it on your own. Spitting on his face. He'll forgive you today. And then not only will he forgive you, but he'll use that very self-sustaining aseity that you tried to claim for your own, that you mocked in him. He'll use that very eternal power to sustain you. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 through 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Now we can stop there. This is what we've been looking at, right? He is the everlasting God. He has this everlasting power. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. And he went, and in the display of his power, his creative ability, he, even in that, does not become weary or tired. He is self sustaining. But yet, look what he does with that very same power. Verse 30, excuse me, verse 29. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, 
Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So yes, we, we stand in awe of God and His aseity and His great eternal power, but yet we say, can you help me please? Because I am not like you. I don't come anywhere close. I am in utter need daily. Would you fill me, God? And he does. He does, Christian. Depend on God for your strength. Dear saint, God does not become weary or tired. We do. Therefore, you can call on him to give you strength. And this is nothing to be ashamed of, right? He says, even though the youths, the, the young men, they fail, they're limited, even them. This, yet I can go to God and have strength. I don't have to be like those young men trying to do it on their own, fall flat on their face. Young man, have you noticed that your pride has gotten in the way of seeing the power of God operating within your life? Why don't you get out of the way? Do it God's way and watch Him work. Try and, try and not take things into your own hands for once. You are not God. You are a mere man, a created being. You need to see the folly of claiming the self-sufficiency, this independence, this autonomy from God. Dear Christian, you have limitations. That's okay. You get tired and are weak at times. That's okay. We don't expect you to come here and, and when we ask you, how was your week? Oh, wonderful. Quit lying. You're weak. Now, if it, if it, was, if it was wonderful because... The power of God was operating in your weakness. Tell us that. He bore me up on eagle's wings this week. I made it through. I don't know how, but it was all God. Tell us that. Give glory to Him. We all get tired. We all get needy. And Christ wants you to come to Him to find strength in the midst of your weakness, Christian. Don't you understand that He gets glory when you cry out to Him? So are you too tired to serve? Are you too weak to face tomorrow, Christian? Are you too weary to take that step of faith? Mothers, are you just worn out? Can I get an amen? <laughs> are you worn out? Do you feel like you just can't do another day? The demands that are put upon you day after day, there's no day off, is there? Mothers, Christ can sustain you. Yes, be tired. And then go to God for strength. And watch Him work. Dear church, we need to be a people that are dependent upon God alone 
for our strength. We need to be known as a weak people with a great God. That's who people need to know us as. So what do you do when you're too weak, too tired, too weary? You go to him for strength. And then you go forward. And then when you look back and see what God has done through you, then you give him the glory that he deserves. Because he's, he's enabled you to make it through. And to do what you didn't want to do and thought you couldn't do. Give him the glory as you depend on God alone for your strength. Also, Psalm 63. Psalm chapter 63. Verse 1, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. What is the psalmist describing here? Is he describing that he's just physically thirsty? And that if he prays, God quenches his thirst? No. He's talking about the thirst of his soul. Right? Depend on God for your soul satisfaction, Christian. When trials come, when sufferings make their way into your life, Christian, do you lose all joy? Do you just throw in the towel? When you lose your job or your house, do you act as if you have lost your God as well? When you or a loved one is sick, maybe with even a terminal illness, do you forget that Christ has healed your soul? When the disappointments and the trials of life make their way and have a hold on you, is God not there in the valley of the shadow of death? There is a satisfaction, Christian, that can fill your soul. Yet, it is true that on this side of heaven, that yearning, that soul thirst will never go away. Because where are we? In a dry and weary land. We are in, on this side of heaven. We're on the, we're on the, Right side of the fall and this side of heaven, you could say. We're somewhere in between. It's a dry and weary land. There is no water. What is he saying? I walk this earth. I live life. And I try and get soul satisfaction, soul quenching satisfaction in this land. I try and find it here. And there, I try to find it in entertainment and relationships and health and, and wealth. And I try and find it in, in even family. I try and find it in, in good works. I try to find uh, 
my soul satisfaction in, in bad relationships, in entertainment, in power, in prestige, in, in, in my reputation. I try and find it in my circumstances. But what will you always find out? There is no water here. There's no water here for your soul, Christian. Don't you see? Haven't you tried? Haven't you gone from well to well in this barren land and found that every well is dried up? What else do we do? We run to Christ alone again and again for our joy and our peace and our soul's satisfaction. He is what you need. And yet, no matter how much he satisfies you today, you're going to need him again tomorrow. Right? But that's fine. Isn't it? Why? Because there is just as much satisfaction to be found in Christ tomorrow as you found in Him today. You see, the aseity, the self-sustaining existence of God, that fountain is never dried up. So what do you do? You go to Him again. Christ alone is your self-existent, unending source of satisfaction. He is the eternal resource for your soul. Remember, God's life, His happiness, does not come from anyone else. He is self-existent. We're not. Our life and even our happiness, our joy, are dependent upon Him. In Christ, we have everything that can truly satisfy our souls. He is our bread of life. He is our living water. Why else does he use those descriptions for himself? If not for the, to, to satisfy you and to give you life in your soul. Don't you see that it is folly to try and make it on your own? To try and tough up. To try and just, just buck up and do it on your own. No, you're weak. So be weak. I have no strength in myself. If it wasn't for God, I would have failed this week. Don't you see, church? It doesn't matter how close you get to God and how long you've been a believer. If He doesn't uphold you, you'll fall. It's true of the best of us. Christ alone is, a, is the sustaining, life-giving source that all Christians can draw on. And like the psalmist says in Psalm 16, 11, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. What are those? How is the joy and the pleasure of God described? Full and forever, eternal. So you see, our souls must be satisfied in him alone. Depend upon God alone for your strength and your satisfaction, Christian. What do you do? 
you go to him. Are you in need? Go to him. Do you need wisdom? Go to Christ. Do you need strength to make it another day, to wake up tomorrow and to submit to that fool of a boss? Go to him. Do you need strength and and endurance to, to go back home to that man or that woman that is so hard to live with? Go to Christ. He will sustain you. He's all that you need. And and Christian, when you go to him, take as much as you need. You understand? With the aseity, with the self-sufficiency of God, you can take as much as you need. And then tomorrow, what are his mercies? They're new tomorrow. And you can take as much as you need tomorrow again. And he will have more for the next day and more for the next day. Go to him. We see here in these few verses in Exodus that in God's commissioning of Moses, he first discloses himself. Before sending Moses, he first tells Moses who he is. Christian, if you are to have any victory in life, If you are to live in obedience and to serve him as Moses had to go on to do, if you are ever to cope with the difficulties of life, then you must know who your God is. So do not live your Christian life not knowing the God whom you live for. Go to Christ as your all-sufficient Savior and depend on God alone for your strength and your satisfaction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you just in awe. In just a few verses, you you stun us, God. What's left for us in the rest of of your word? God, forgive us for trying to do this on our own. Forgive us for thinking that if I just get a little more sleep or if I can just rest or if I can just watch a little bit of TV, then I'll have the strength that I need. If I can just exercise, take a vitamin, eat right, if I can just do these things, then I can control it, then I can make it. Forgive us, Lord, for that folly. Forgive us for not first coming to you and pleading with you to fill us. God, I pray for your people this week that they would come to you every day, that they would wake up needy again and they would find that you are a fount of living water. And that as your spirit lives within us, he gives us and sustains us with all that we need for life and godliness. God, may we live as people that that have everything that we need. We ought to be content people. We ought to be happy, joyful people. May we represent you well. God, I pray that in the eyes of your people, you would be greater and greater in their eyes. And their troubles and their trials become smaller and smaller. May you be the center of our attention through this week, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.